All right, so go ahead and find a seat. So as Steve and Mary reminded us earlier this morning at the start of the service, today is the third Sunday of Advent, which means we're really close to Christmas. So in the spirit of Christmas, we have a little exercise that we're going to do with you guys, and it involves filling in the blank of a couple of phrases that we're going to show you on the screen in just a moment. So what I've done is I have Googled the top phrases and greetings associated with Christmas, and then I've taken out one word from each of those phrases. And so you simply have to supply the word that's missing, and trust me, it's really, really easy. Um, so let's go ahead and start with joy to the world. All right, so and as you do that, I'm just gonna write down your, oh, we're, we're going too fast. <laughs> We have joy to the world. And then the next one. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. You get extra credit if you sing them. All right? There it is. <laughs> Sorry, no candy today. All right, and another one? All right, so we have two jollies, jolly times two. Okay, I think we had, tis the season to be what? All right, we'll do this one first then. Happy holidays. All right, and wonderful. <laughs> you guys are beautiful. And I think there was one that we went through too fast. You got it? And I just missed it? Oh, no, it was right there. They're all on there. Okay. So what this list represents is the feelings or the emotions that are most commonly associated with Christmas. Because I Googled the top phrases and greetings associated with Christmas, and then I pulled out all the feeling words. Wonderful isn't exactly a feeling or emotion, but it's close enough that I kept it on the list. So if these are the feelings and emotions most commonly associated with Christmas, um, some of you guys look at this list and you say, yeah, that accurately represents my feelings about Christmas. I'm excited. I'm joyful. It's a, it's a happy time. It's a wonderful season. And for many of you, this is, this is right, in the, right in line with how you feel about the Christmas holidays. For some of you, however, as you look at this list, you maybe feel differently, and maybe even to the point of feeling a little bit isolated as you start to look at things like joy, merry, jolly, happy, and wonderful. Because maybe your experience of Christmas and the Christmas season has been different from some of these. And if you were to compile a list of your feelings and emotions about Christmas, maybe it would include different words, and maybe it wouldn't include any of these at all, or maybe some mix of the two. Um, and so what I want to talk about today is just as it's appropriate to celebrate and be joyful about Christmas, it's also appropriate to have this sense of, uh, of a longing for something else, a sense of recognition that all is not the way it is supposed to be. Um, for some of you, maybe you've lost a loved one, and there's someone that you used to celebrate Christmas with who isn't here, and you miss them. Um, for some of you, Maybe your family is broken, 
and you wish that Christmas could be this happy time when the whole family gets together, but it's just not. It's something very different for you. Um, maybe there's not exactly any one reason um, why you feel sad about Christmas. There could be a million different reasons, but maybe you just feel alone, or maybe you feel sad. And um, you look around and you see others being happy, and you look around and you see others singing all these Christmas carols and meaning it and feeling it, and you wish that you could too, and yet your experience is different. And you don't blame others for being joyful because you recognize that Christmas is about celebrating the birth of Christ, which is a wonderful thing, and it's celebrating the fact that God came and lived among people, which is amazing, and so you recognize that it's appropriate to be joyful. Um, but you're also aware, because of your life circumstances, that even though Jesus came and he was born, and he lived among us, after he lived among us, he died, and then he left without fixing everything. And the world that we live in has a lot of great things about it, but it also has a lot of brokenness. And maybe you're very aware of that, particularly during the Christmas season. So I want to talk about the fact that it is appropriate to have both emotions during this time. And the reason it's appropriate is because the Bible promises not only the coming of Christ, but it also promises the restoration of all things. And it promises that all things will be made right. And that's what we don't see yet. So it's appropriate to long for that. So this morning what we will do is look at a passage from Isaiah. Um, last week, actually, Glenn took us through a passage from the beginning of Isaiah. And it was a passage talking about the coming of Christ. And that one has already happened. And we looked back at it. Today we're going to look at a passage from the end of the book of Isaiah. And it's a passage about his second coming, which is something that we still look towards in the future. Um, so... Let's pray, and then we're going to open God's word. We'll be in Isaiah 65. So would you bow and pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have to study your word together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've re revealed to us about us, about yourself, about how we can know you. Um, and thank you for your son. Thank you for everything that Christmas represents. And thank you also that it's appropriate sometimes to long for something uh, that we don't yet see. And so um, guide us this morning as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start in Isaiah 65, verse 17. Um, you can open in your own Bible if you'd like to and follow along, but we're going to project the whole thing on the screen, and it will be in the NIV. Okay. Almost in the NIV. <laughs> All right. So it says, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. So when the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth, this is the terminology that it uses to refer to what we think of as heaven. So we think of going to heaven when you die. And the Bible usually talks about heaven coming to earth, and it's the place that God dwells with people. That's what heaven actually is. It's called the new heaven and the new earth. And in this place, there will be a new city called Jerusalem, and that's where we'll dwell with God. So that's what's being talked about in this whole passage um, that we're about to study. Um, and this is a kind of a return to paradise, if you want to think of it that way, because Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then this verse we're looking at today is, See, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. 
So it's a return to that. And I have a question for you guys as we look at this verse and as we look at all of the verbs throughout the remainder of the passage. What tense are the verbs in? They're future tense. So at least at the time of writing, this was something that was still in the future, was still far off. How about from our vantage point today? Is it still future? Yeah, this is still future. So we're still looking forward to this. All right, so then it moves on and it says, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So this raises the question in my mind, what are the former things? What are these things that won't be remembered? Um, something cool about the, new, the, the way the Bible talks about the new heaven and the new earth is there's a great description of it in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, but there's also a great description of it in Revelation, in the New Testament. And so I'm going to bounce back and forth between those two this morning. So let's look in, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. But in John's account, in Revelation, his account of the same thing, he says, he kind of tells us what the former things are that will pass away. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So these are the former things. Um, death, crying, tears, and what, what we're learning is that heaven is this place where those things are no more. They've passed away. And that's something that I think we can long for. That's something that we can look forward to with anticipation, and we wish it was here now, but death is still a reality, but one day, death will be no more. So let's move on, verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. So again, Jerusalem is this city in the new heaven where God will dwell with people. Verse 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Again, these are former things that will, that will pass away. Then we come to this tricky part in verse 20. So let's put 20 on the screen. All right, so in verse 20 it says this. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. And that part's easy, right? So infants aren't going to pass away. Old men aren't going to die before their time. But then it says, the one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. So why is this tricky? I thought about just breezing over it and hoping nobody noticed. But I knew someone would come up to me afterwards and say, what about the dying part? So why is this tricky in this particular context? What? They're not supposed to be dying, yeah. So if we're talking about heaven, why are these people still dying? So here's how I work through this. So the question is, will people die in heaven? And the answer is no for two reasons. One, because earlier in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 25, it actually says this about heaven, about this, this period. He will swallow up death forever. So Isaiah himself in the same book says, death is gone. There's this time when death will be gone. The second reason why um, death is not in heaven is because Revelation 21, verse four, which is John's account of the same thing, he fills in a little bit more of the gaps. He says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, we already read this, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore. So death is one of the former things that's passing away. So then it leaves the question though, why does he say it this way? And I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to use the language that's available to him, and he's trying to describe a, 
concept that, he, that he's struggling to describe, which is this place where death has died, or this place where death has passed away. And the best that he can do is he can say, think of a hundred-year-old person. Well, that's really, really old. And he says, no, that's young. That's really young. In this place where we're going to be, a hundred will seem young. And I think that's what he's trying to do. So we can talk more about that after if you're still stuck on it. I like talking about these things. So. Verse 21. They will build houses and they will dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. So we talked about this verse in our staff meeting on Monday. And um, one of the staff members pointed out that this concept of building houses and others living in them, that sounds like construction workers. And the idea of um, planting and others eating sounds like what farmers do. So is this talking about construction and farming? And it's not. It's, talking, it's referring back to something in Deuteronomy 28, where God told the people of Israel, he said, you have two options in front of you. You can either follow me, do the right thing, and it will lead to blessing and prosperity, or you can choose disobedience and rebellion, and I'll tell you where that's leading to, and it's leading to death. And then he spells out in a lot of detail exactly what those consequences would be. And what did they choose? They chose poorly. They chose disobedience. And the result in Deuteronomy 28, verse 30, says this. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. So it's the exact same words as we're looking at right here. Um, and so what's happening in Isaiah is it is a reversal of the curse that they have experienced from Deuteronomy 28. And, and God is saying, you will now be able to enjoy um, the homes that you build. You'll be able to enjoy the food that you plant. And you'll be able to, um, well, it spells it out in the next verse. It says this. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. So they'll be able to enjoy what they do. Um, what about this tree? Okay, so why does it say, as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people? This is a reference to Psalm 92, where the psalmist is talking about the righteous person's life is going to be like that of a tree. And he says it's like that of a tree in two ways. One, a tree lives really long. And two, a tree flourishes. And it's productive. So he says, similarly, your lives will be really long and will be characterized by flourishing and prosperity instead of bad things. What kind of bad things? Uh, verse 23 says this. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Okay, so the type of misfortune that they used to see is, is done away with. So let me ask you this. To experience blessing and flourishing in place of cursing and calamity, and a lot of the things that we see around us, to experience the good things in place of that, is that something that you long for? It is for me. That's something that I, I think we all can agree would be, would be great. Uh, the next verse, 24. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. So, one of my biggest complaints against God throughout my life has been that sometimes he seems really silent. And I don't know if anybody else shares that, but sometimes I've felt that, 
I got some thumbs up from the balcony. <laughs> Sometimes God seems really, really silent. And my frustration is that when I talk with a person, I say something and they say something back, most people. And I say something and they say something back and it's this two-way conversation. And I can look them in the eye and I can see their face. And my frustration is, God, why can't I talk to you like that? Because sometimes it's really, really difficult to talk to you or to hear from you. Um, and I get that we can pray and we can read the Bible and those are great things. I don't want to under, undermine that. But it's not the same as talking to God face to face. And I think we can all acknowledge that. Job, um, Job longed for this same thing. So here's how he put it, and, and this is really cool actually that Job would say this because Job is a story that took place during the time of Genesis. So he had this concept all the way from back in the time of Genesis. Job says, in the midst of all his suffering, he says, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, I myself with, him, with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And I think a lot of us can connect with that, that desire to just see God face to face right in front of us and have a conversation with him like you would a friend. And one day, this will be a reality. So back in John's account of the new heaven and the new earth, it says this in verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So to live with God, to be face-to-face -face with God, to be able to finally talk with God, is that something that you long for? It is for me. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. So it's interesting that the one curse in all of this that doesn't get reversed is the curse against the serpent, which isn't a main point of what I'm trying to say, but I think it's worth noting. So in Genesis 3, it says to the serpent that his curse was, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now that's restated. Instead of reversed, it's actually restated. <coughs> dust will be the serpent's food. So his doesn't get reversed. I'm glad I'm not the serpent. But all of these other curses that we see throughout, throughout our experience and throughout the people of God's experience, they're all being overturned and they're being reversed, which is an incredible thing. And in fact, it's a return to um, the condition that was in the garden, a, a return to the ideal condition that was in the garden. So where it says the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox, it's talking about creatures not killing each other anymore, which was what happened in the garden. Creatures didn't have to kill each other. There was this ideal setup in the garden where in order for one creature to exist, another creature didn't have to die. And that's not what we see around us today, but that's what we will see around us again in the future. That's something that we can look forward to. The last phrase of the passage that we're reading is, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. And this concludes our passage from Isaiah 65. So a summary of this, if we, if we can take a quick look at the different things that we've noted throughout the passage. Okay, so we'll go through them one by one. 
we see a new heaven and a new earth, which is our concept of heaven, in which the former things, tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain have passed away, where all experience blessing and flourishing instead of cursing and calamity, where God will dwell with the people and he hears and he answers, and all God's creatures live in harmony. That to me is an appealing picture of heaven. I think so often I've heard of heaven as this place where we go and we sit in the clouds and we sing songs for all eternity, and I don't even love singing songs. And so heaven just doesn't sound that great to me. But then when I read this, when I read this, I'm, those are things that I can genuinely connect with and I can genuinely long for. And I think that heaven is going to be an incredible place. So we have a lot to look forward to, but we're not there yet. This is still something in the future, and we're still waiting for it. Which brings us back to the idea of Advent. So Advent is a time of waiting. And I think usually when we, when we think of Advent, we think of waiting for Christmas, because it's the Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And so it's this waiting for this joyful celebration. And as was pointed out last week correctly, um, the word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means waiting, and it's typically referring to the first coming of Christ. So it's this joyful waiting, this, this expectant waiting for the first coming of Christ. But um, the Latin word actually comes from a Greek word, which is found in the Bible. And the Greek word is parousia, which only refers to the second coming of Christ, which is something that still hasn't happened yet. So my reason for bringing that up is Advent has always been about both. It's always been about celebrating the birth of Christ and at the same time, looking forward to this thing that hasn't happened yet, this thing that we still long for. So it's appropriate to have both types of feelings. Um, so if Advent is about celebrating Christ's birth and it's also about longing for his return, then it's no wonder that the Christmas season brings with it so many mixed emotions. Because we're celebrating the birth of Christ um, and all the joyful things, but we're still very aware of the fact that the world is messed up. The world has problems. We're joyful about our salvation and we're excited about the fact that we are included in God's family, but we recognize that our own families are broken. If Christmas is a time of celebration for you, be sensitive to those around you who may have a different experience. If Christmas is a time of sadness for you, be comforted by the fact that these promises that we've talked about are real and that we still look for them and we can long for them. We don't see them yet, but they are still promises that God has given us. So what sort of people should we be while we wait? So we're going to conclude with one final verse. In the Bible, there are only three places where it talks about the idea of a new heaven and a new earth. And we've already looked at two of them. One was Isaiah. One was Revelation, and the last one is in the book of 2 Peter. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, and this is not going to be projected, so you can just listen. It says this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So that's what I want to leave you with, is a, is a message of peace and, and of hope. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these two truths. Um, the one that, that we can celebrate and we can be joyful about the coming of Christ and the reality of salvation. And the other, that there's still something to be longing for and that it's, that it's appropriate to recognize that our world is not as it should be. And I pray that we would learn how to balance those. And I pray that this Christmas season would be a time um, when we can all draw closer to you and closer to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.